Welcome to Connectify Conversations. My name is Shannon Adair, and I'm the Director of Client Success at Connectify. Our mission is to share the experience, expertise, and insights from gaming industry leaders that comes from years of navigating the complexities and impact of compliance. On this episode, we have special guest. My name is Seth Shore. I'm the CEO of Fifth Street Gaming. Also with us today. My name is Sean Topchi, and I'm the Director of Business Development at Connectify. Thanks for joining us today, and remember to like and subscribe to the podcast. You can also learn more anytime at connectify.com. That's K-I-N-E-C-T-I-F-Y.com. Thanks for joining us today. It's nice to be here. Can you give us a little background on yourself? Every time I'm asked that question, I feel like I have to go farther back in time, which makes me feel older <laughs> every time I have one of these interviews. But I will I'll give a little bit of historical background if that helps and if that's interesting to you. Absolutely. Uh, certainly. I'm sitting here at the Downtown Grand Hotel and Casino in downtown Las Vegas, where I am the chairman. And I'm about three blocks away from the Golden Nugget where I actually moved into 40 years ago around this time when I was about six years old. So my I was introduced to the gambling industry at a very young age. Don't worry, I won't take you through 40 years of my life. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, farther back than I expected. I have to say, when I think about the gambling industry, it really does go back to that early exposure as a kid. And all the opportunities I had throughout my life to work in different areas of this business in many ways has led to the position I am in today. So that's very interesting. Again, way earlier back then than we thought, but obviously there there was probably quite a few stops along the way that got you to your CEO spot at Fifth Street Gaming. What was the experience you came up on? Was it through the ops side, the marketing side, the finance, more a mixture of them? Sure. So I had an opportunity to work for Mirage Resorts for much of my early career. I was in Macau about gosh, 23 years ago on the ground there as a part of the first boots on the ground. And I've had, I really was exposed to all areas of the casino business from a very young age. About 16 years ago, I decided to take a slightly different path than to continue to climb the ladder in the corporate environment and had the opportunity to raise some funds by my first casino, uh, which at the time was called the Speedway Casino in North Las Vegas. We have since taken it through two different rebrands, went from the Speedway Casino to the Lucky Club Casino back in 2008. And a few months ago, we reopened this property as the Ojos Locos Sports Cantina e Casino, which was very exciting for me to be able to rebrand this casino, which means a lot to me as it was the first casino uh, we acquired many years ago. Yeah, that's that's incredibly exciting. I had been following that one as it started to come up. Las Vegas and the gambling industry in general has such a large Latino population. It's awesome to get to see a building or a property come up that's really dedicated to that demographic and is catered to them and made for them. I guess really speaking of to Ojos Locos Casino and maybe even Jefebet a little bit, what caused you to have that focus on the Latino market? Sure. I'd like to say that I've made a good career focusing on niche opportunities that some of the larger operators don't focus on. And that is true. However, in this case, it was really as much about acquiring a casino that I quickly noticed was in the epicenter of the Latino population and made a very conscious decision 15 years ago to serve that population. It didn't take much to quickly observe that a large percentage of our customer segment spoke Spanish as the first language. And to the best of my knowledge, nobody was specifically catering to this population and offering them an experience that was authentic and unique to them. When I acquired the Lucky Club, the holding company that I put together to acquire it was called Ganaste Gaming. Okay, so even at that time, 
I had this desire to create a Latino casino. However, at roughly 30 years old and only having one casino in our portfolio, it was a pretty big risk to only go after the segment because you're basically you're basically telling other segments of the population that this property isn't necessarily for you. And that's a bit, it's a risky business decision. At that time, this was 2008. We also, a few months after we acquired the casino, we entered the great recession and it was a very tricky time. And just staying in business seemed more important than trying this revolutionary new concept of creating a Latino brand. So there were circumstances that stopped us from moving forward with that concept at the time. But over the years, we always cater to this Latino population, even though we didn't create a casino just for them. We had quinceañeras and Mexican rodeos and great concerts with Norteño and banda music. And obviously at Spanish speaking staff, fast forward many years. And a few years ago, my partner, Jeffrey Fine and I were thinking about our long-term strategy and we said, wow, now is finally the time to revisit that concept we had a decade and a half ago. And that's when we started to put together the plans for a Latino casino. That was right before COVID. Then 2020 happened. I said, are you kidding me? Is there going to be another world event that's going to stop me from seeing this vision through? Okay, um, great timing. Great timing. <laughs> have great timing, right? And of course, that did slow things down once again, just trying to figure out what's going to happen with the world. But we got lucky. Because it was in 2020 that I met the owners of Ojos Locos. And I met them and I had shared with them. Oh, that's interesting. You guys have a sports bar concept that specifically targets a Latino population. We're building a casino specifically for this population. Oh, that's interesting. Hey, come check out our flagship property in Dallas. And I did. And I realized we shared the same vision, just executing it in different ways. And it was very clear, very quickly that we should collaborate, which we did. And of course, it took a year or so to put our plans together. But I believe if we had moved forward with a Latino casino without Ojos Locos, I could tell you, certainly, I can't tell you if it would have been successful or not. I like to think it would have been, but it would not have been as successful as it is today. And this partnership is really one, a match made in heaven, I'm that sincerely. I know the brand recognition in Texas, there's several locations in El Paso, different areas that I've been to, where I've actually had the pleasure of checking out a few of them. But what has, since it is more of a Texas brand, what has that reception been like here in Vegas? Yeah, so the brand recognition is a good thing. You're absolutely right. But honestly, I have a feeling 90% of our customers have no idea that there's 25 other stores it's just a good brand. It looks like a good brand. It's a fun brand. It means beer goggles. These are partners at Ojos Locos. They're pros, right? They're opening six to eight stores a year. They are professional. So, you know, it's one thing to create a brand that is authentic and is designed specifically for this segment, but it's also professionally done. It's clean. It's got great service. You know, own and operate restaurants. It's very difficult to open a busy restaurant and just have it work overnight. It usually takes months to iron out the kinks. And of course, nothing's perfect, but boy, these it was pretty close to it. So the fact that they're such good operators, they understand the market, they understand how to program the right entertainment and sports content, throwing events around UFC fights and soccer matches. And then of course, very well-trained, very friendly, very beautiful staff. That is definitely a big part of the experience. I kind of want to jump over a similar topic, but was Hefebet already happening in, in conjunction or did that kind of happen as a result of this and getting to know the individuals at Ojos Locos? Yeah, in terms of sequencing, it was definitely the result of wanting to extend our Latino brand on in the digital world to a greater audience, right? To a national audience. I've had a lot of experience with online gaming. I actually built the first online casino for Wynn Resorts back in 2001, so over two decades ago. Unfortunately, we couldn't go live with it based on regulations at the time, but was exposed to that world very close to what was happening in Europe and 
I've always had a desire to build an online. So extending our brand online was just a natural progression. We did want to create a brand, a Jefe Bet, that complemented what we're doing at Ojos Locos, but what was different. Obviously, it's, it's not a restaurant and we wanted to create a specific casino brand. We launched that a little over a year ago. Uh, it's was received with also great success in terms of site traffic, visitation. And I was actually surprised that online there was such a void in the market for sports betting and casino related content in Spanish. It, it was a huge void. And I have other websites, so I do have experience and know how hard it is to rank for certain search terms in English because there is a very large global media business that's competing for these eyeballs. And that just wasn't the case in Spanish. I was very surprised by that. Further, I was surprised that not only was there a void in the United States, but we seem to rank very high in Latin America as well, which is one of the reasons why as a company, we decided to move forward with an online casino in Chile, which we are launching over the next eight weeks. Oh, congratulations. That's huge. Yeah, we're excited about it. We, we have Ojos Locos. We have, I know you sit on several boards within Nevada and nonprofits as well. You're wearing a lot of hats. How do you juggle all of these various roles and responsibilities to these different companies and organizations? It's a great question. It's very simple. And that's, it's a cliche, but it's about having the right teams and it's about having the right people in the right seats. And I'm very blessed to have surrounded myself with individuals that are great in the weeds and in the trenches and they're great operators. And I'm able to position myself in a place where I can drive strategy. I can make sure that our teams have the right resources, whether that's capital or otherwise, and really can connect the dots with these different companies. I think the world we live in today, there's, it's certainly a double-edged sword in terms of being constantly connected to business. I do think for myself, there are more pros than cons. I am able to be flexible in where I physically am sitting and can spend time with my family and can certainly get a lot done at all times of the day. Like many of us in this crazy world we live in, it's it does take a lot of focus and discipline to put down the phone and computer and focus on the family and carve out that time and make sure that I'm not constantly working. And that is a balancing act that I go through on a daily basis. If you ask my wife and children, I'm probably more successful some days than others. But I do honestly think it's something I've gotten better at. And I feel very lucky. I feel very lucky that we live in a world that we could do that. I don't know that I would do well working in an environment where you know, you worked in an office on one business. I just, I don't think I'm wired or programmed for that and very much love the business life that, that I've created around me. That's fantastic. And I'll be learning that balancing act soon. I've got a 12 day old baby downstairs right now. It is, it is super important. I would love for others to learn from my mistakes, but it's it's important, especially at that age. And it's less about your baby. It's more about your wife. So if you want a happy wife, happy life, make sure you're there supporting her. Appreciate that advice. A gaming and marriage podcast. I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. So it sounds like gaming has been a big part of your life almost since you can remember. Can you tell us a little bit more about what led you to become interested in esports specifically? Sure. So once again, I'm sitting here at the Downtown Grand Hotel and Casino, which we opened just about 10 years ago. And it was here probably eight years ago. So I think it was our second year of operation. And we were looking for ways to stand out in a very competitive landscape. Las Vegas is very competitive. Downtown Las Vegas is very competitive. And I was talking to the private equity owners of this property and the chairman mentioned to me, hey, Seth, I hear people are gambling on video games online. Let's see if we can't tap into that. And I didn't know what he was talking about. And through a little bit of an exploration, I'm pretty resourceful. So pretty quickly, I was introduced to the world of esports. This was in early 2015. 
and realized that, yes, amongst many other things, people were competing against each other online for money. There was certainly some crossover with what I was seeing happening online with these gamers and potentially gambling. I learned very quickly that even in Europe, there were some sports books taking wagers on the outcome of professional matches. So that seemed like an obvious place to start. And it got very exciting, especially here in downtown Las Vegas, where we had a young demographic and it seemed like a great way to just do something different. Within six, seven, eight months, I had gone to the gaming control board and got their blessing to run cash tournaments here at the downtown Grand and even got them to approve a wager on the outcome of an event. This was the 2015 IEM event in San Jose. It's a League of Legends match. And I think what I quickly realized was this is a massive world, the world of esports, the the world of video games in general. And it just seemed obvious to me at the time that there was an opportunity for the gambling industry, and especially Las Vegas, to really capitalize on it. Like most of my ambitions and ideas, I thought at the time it would be a little easier and a little faster and just be able to plug and play. And that wasn't the case. But... I've learned everything I've learned over the last eight years only makes me feel more confident that my initial thesis was accurate. It's just like anything, the execution takes some time and there there are a lot of moving parts. So yeah, that's how I got into it. And since I've invested in esports, we've built arenas. I I had a team live here at the downtown grand. We built tournament platforms, created the greatest esports festival that never existed called a Metarama. Unfortunately, that a COVID casualty that we couldn't get off the ground. But I think we're still in the early days of esports and there's a lot more to be seen. You really seem to be a trailblazer as as far as getting towards regulated gambling esports market. To your point, these things always go a little slower than you hope. I imagine part of that is the regulatory landscape. So love if you could speak a little bit about what you've seen and really where it's heading. Yeah. So if you ask me five, six, seven years ago, what are the blockers for regulated esports betting? I would have said in this order, the regulation, the technology, the IP holders, right? What do the publishers think? They do have a say. And then finally, the market. Does the marketplace exist? Do the consumers want this type of wagering? What I can tell you today is that the regulators are definitely not a blocker. Specifically here in Nevada, we have a very progressive, very open-minded, very creative gaming control board over the past couple of years. Early last year, the gaming control board created the Esports Technical Advisory Committee, which they curated a membership of very qualified gambling experts, people from the gaming space. We have representatives from Activision Blizzard and Ubisoft on the committee, representative from Twitch, representatives like myself from the gambling industry, from UNLV, a really good committee. And we helped to new regulations. So here in Nevada, this is very interesting, and I really don't think has gotten enough attention as it deserves. But ultimately, what the new regs does is it allows the gambling operator, the licensee, to decide what esport matches, tournaments, leagues they want to offer wagers on, and that they have self-qualified these events as meeting the minimum standards that the Gaming Control Board has laid out. And there's a list of six, seven, eight different things that need to be, boxes that need to be checked. And it's putting the responsibility on the operator to make that decision, which, which I think is the right path. As opposed to what we had to do in the past, an operator had to go to the game and control board and get each event approved, which is very inefficient. And it was not a great way for an operator to offer wagers on lots of different events. The game and control board passed this in January. As you may know, Nevada has a new governor, amazing guy. I'm a big fan. I think he's wonderful. But There is a moratorium on any new regulations at the moment. So this regulation has not been put into place yet. It is a matter of weeks or months before it's going into place. So there is no regulatory hurdle. I'm very close to the regulators in New Jersey, Colorado, a few other jurisdictions that have taken a different approach, but still one that is very open-minded and not blocking it. So the regulations are not an issue. The technology is not an issue. And right now what we're talking about is wagering on the outcome of a professional match. So it's no different than the outcome of a professional football game. The IP holders, for the most part, are not an issue. I can't lump every publisher together. 
But as I mentioned, Activision, Blizzard, and Ubisoft sit on our committee. They're all for this form of betting. So for better or worse, the thing that is, in my opinion, slowing down the success are the operators themselves and their willingness and ability to create the marketplace. I don't blame them, by the way, these major operators, DraftKings, FanDuel, BetMGM, Caesar, so on and so forth. They're just focused on going live in Massachusetts last week, right? Ohio a few months before that, Kansas a month before that. That's the most important thing, getting more market access, customer acquisition. Figuring out esports is probably number eight on their priority list of 10 priorities. And I think that makes a ton of sense. So for better or worse, the proliferation of mobile sports wagering has actually slowed down the progress of esports. However, it is also my humble opinion that sometime in, I'd say 2024, 2025 at the latest, but probably next year, when there are no, no new major states coming online and the major operators need to diversify their product, and right now, let's be honest, most of the sports betting apps are exactly the same, in my opinion, esports is one of the many ways to do that. So we'll likely see one to three operators say, okay, this is how we're going to tap into a new audience. This is how we're going to acquire the 25 or 28-year-old male or female gamer. And at that point, they'll invest a little bit of time and resources into creating that marketplace. Likely you'll see a media deal, no different than you saw media deals in traditional sports. The first operator to go do a deal with Amazon for Twitch, they're going to crush it. By the way, they have football on Twitch. So there's other things, which isn't just for gaming. It'll happen. Somebody will write a check or Amazon will get into the betting business. Who knows? But that's my prediction and it'll be sooner than... So interesting you, you said that because when at first you talk about how the regulators took kind of a different approach to the regulation, putting the onus on the operator. But my initial thought is, gosh, that can allow for a much more dynamic environment to get things approved a little quicker than traditionally. But it, it's funny you're talking about, and it makes sense with all these big operators focused on market after market launch and, you know, how hard it is to get market share if you're not FanDuel, DraftKings, BetMGM, PointsBet, right? A lot of those top operators, Caesars Digital. Do you think esports creates an opportunity for smaller startup or more local betting companies to get this market share early and quick before those larger operators start branching into this? Yeah, I think so. And I think we're seeing companies like Rivalry out of Canada doing a great job. They've done a great job, not only because it's their focus and they're early, but they've created a brand that is truly authentically created for the gamers. And you can see that in their marketing, in their promotions, in their social media, in their use of influencers. It's a gaming brand. I think they're going to be very successful. Maybe they're one of the big boys acquires them. Who knows? Or maybe they just continue to grow organically. But yes, I do think that there are opportunities for niche operators. Uh, in New Jersey, they are in the process of creating new skins specifically for esports sports books to make it easier and more cost effective for an operator to go after that audience. Now, that being said, I also don't know that it makes economic sense to have a book that only focuses on esports. I think that one of the value is bet on this sports match then also have the opportunity and crossover to bet on any of the other stick and ball sports, of which there is tremendous crossover. Giving the consumer a holistic experience is probably the best one, but we'll see. And I know it, it really seemed COVID really propelled, maybe not the esports betting market, but the esports market in, in the past few years for a time. And it seemed like at least gray market betting at the time exploded around esports and makes sense. Obviously, there's no baseball or soccer or basketball or football to bet on. Granted, I think there was Korean baseball organization and maybe Ukrainian and Russian ping pong matches. Betters had to fill the void somehow. I guess with things getting to a more regular place, do you see esports scaling back or having a regression that significantly impacts esports betting? Yeah, look, you're right. People would have bet on a cockroach race in 2020, right? There was definitely some exposure to esports to people that otherwise may not have been interested. Look, I think esports, the handle around regulated betting around esports has never been massive. So it's, I don't think that it's a matter of retracting. I just think there's 
slow growth. And as I mentioned earlier, it should only be a part of the strategy to tap into a younger demographic, which is why it makes sense for a DraftKings, FanDuel, BetMGM to just offer esports betting alongside everything else, to potentially have a tab on their mobile app that allows peer-to-peer betting on video games. That's something that's exciting. It's interesting. We do that in the casino. Our casinos are carnivals. We offer all sorts of different types of gambling devices and games for all different types of people, not one thing. And to me, esports is just another thing, which is why I don't know that there needs to be a book or a business just focused on it. I also think there's a bigger conversation. Esports has become a very catchy term over the years, not just in the gambling business, but globally. And the world of professional gaming is interesting and exciting. I think people are just interested to see these large prizes and professional teams. And it's fascinating, right? It's something that's interesting to most people. But what I think is far more interesting is gamer culture. Okay, video games in general. Esports is just a subset of gamer culture. Everybody plays video games of some sort. The average gamer, if you look at mobile social games, is 36 years old, right? There, in my opinion, there are a bunch of different tactics to cater to the gamer and to encourage them to come either into our physical casinos or play on our online platforms. And I think that some of the tactics we've tried in the past, while maybe they made sense or were trying, didn't quite work out. I think skill gaming is a part of that exercise, arcade slot machines. I'm on the board of a company called GameCo that has had different levels of success and failures trying to create a video game slot machine. I actually believe today, while GameCo and others ultimately will be successful over time. I think that there's a completely different and simpler approach that no one has taken. What I mean by that is a lot of us felt in order to cater to the gambler, we had to give an authentic amount of skill in the slot machine for it to be enticing to somebody who's used to playing skill-based games, and we had to completely change the dynamic of the slot. I don't think that thesis was wrong, and I do think there will be certain skill-based games eventually that will be popular. I think there's an approach that's much simpler. I think that we can take any number of the slot machines I have downstairs on our casino floor and just not only reskin them so that they are more attractive to a gamer, but give the player the opportunity to modify the game theme, to have an avatar in the game, to be able to select what it looks like. My kids, when they play Minecraft, Fortnite, they're doing like 19 things at once. And while a slot machine is literally designed for the opposite approach, right? We've designed slot machines, so you literally hit one button. And by the way, that should not go away because we have plenty of 50 to 70 year olds that we do not want to rock that boat. (laughs) But remember, we're a carnival, right? So that means we can create other games. Maybe they're not going to be the most popular, but that they maybe they cater to people in their 20s who have been playing video games since they came out of the womb and they want to have a more dynamic experience. That doesn't mean that the game dynamics have to change. It can still be a chance-based game. It's still just wheel spinning, but everything around it can be different. And that, I think, is the opportunity I don't think anybody has has really tried that approach. I, I think that's a really good point and really gets to understanding the culture and the mind of the gamer. And to your point, growing up playing, whether it was Halo or Call of Duty, where you're picking what weapon you're using, you're picking what skill sets you have, you're picking the armors or even the colors of what you're wearing. And same with all the Gran Turismo's, picking the engine, the torque, the body, all that. The gamer has gotten so used to having that ability to customize or even if it only has a minor impact on the chance of the game, it's that gaming feeling that comes along with it that that makes it more appealing. No, I've never looked at it from that perspective. It's very interesting. I think we did a podcast with Seth Young earlier, and we talked about skill-based games a little bit. One of the points he also brought up was one of the biggest issues he thought is even if you make the skill-based game, that younger audience just isn't really going to the brick-and-mortar casinos. But now that you have this online gaming, it might be so much easier to attract them and start to get that audience. 
a hundred. First of all, Seth never knows what he's talking about. Now I'm just <laughs> for anyone listening. Seth is a partner of mine who I love dearly. So he's I believe he's right. What I like to say is fish where the fish are. Gamers are online. So another thing that we found very challenging at GameCo seven years ago is we built these awesome skill-based slot games. Okay, so imagine you walk up to a cabinet. There's obviously no one-armed bandit. We don't have those anymore, but there are no buttons. There was only an Xbox-like controller, and you got to shoot these aliens. And and there were still slot mechanics, so it was still a game of chance, but the bonus rounds, you got to shoot aliens, and if you had good aim, you got a better payout, right? Really cool. Well, if Borgata, respectfully, decides to test out six of those games and sticks them in the middle of their 3,000-game slot floor, good luck having anybody find it. And yes, to your point, the gamer isn't there. They don't know it's there. So it's just the self-fulfilling prophecy of it wasn't a successful strategy. But yes, launching those games online, where first of all, it's a lot less expensive to develop an online game than putting a game on the floor, you can actually advertise that game in to the gamer, right? It's, you don't really advertise physical games in a retail casino. You can online. It's a great way to introduce the gamer to the online gambling experience, introduce them to your casino brand, right? So now you're BetMGM. You've now tapped into the gamer because you did a deal with Twitch and they're playing your skill-based game on the BetMGM app. Oh, by the way, you then let them know this game you love happens to be in Borgata or at MGM Grand or at Aria. Hey, come and check it out. Now you've created that 360 degree experience where the online and offline experience complement each other and we're not competing against each other. We we got a little off of esports there, but I'm glad we delved into the topic. <laughs> I do want to jump back for a second. Obviously, sure. we are generally generally a regulatory compliance podcast. It it really sounds like from the regulatory environment, it's even though Nevada is taking a slightly different approach to approval of wagers, it's very much a similar regulatory environment to other sports betting. I guess one of the concerns I've seen, whether legitimate or not, that I'd like to ask you about is there there seems to be more of a talk of concern with possible match fixing in esports, <laughs> even though theoretically any sport is can fall victim to it. What are your thoughts on that and you know yeah. how it's being mitigated? And if you really think it is as big of a concern that's, as that's a great question. And everybody loves to reference like one event that happened in North Korea or in like 2015, yeah. I think. Yeah, which is like amazing that we have one thing that we all reference, which that leads me to believe it's not that rampant. So first of all, Sure, it can exist. And I think there are so many online tournaments that are not being played by professionals where there could be all sorts of shenanigans going on those tournaments. And that is clearly not the level that a regulated casino should be taking wagers on. The Esports Technical Advisory Committee, in addition to allowing the sports books to choose what games, leagues, matches they want to take wagers on, we also are putting together a white list, which will give some guidelines. And obviously on that white list are the top tier matches and events. Ones that there's so much to, there won't be any match fixing. First of all, the prizes are too big. Just like someone's not going to throw the Super Bowl because it's it, there's just too much money at stake. So I think it is important that we follow those guidelines that we're only taking wagers on tournaments or matches that have the right governing principles and the right oversight. There are organizations like ESIC, the Esports Integrity Coalition, that not only monitors different events and looks for anomalies that potentially could identify cheating, but also just anomalies in the betting, right? As all of a sudden, is there a high level of betting on some second tier match from some random place in China? that would lead to a suspicious activity report. So I I just, I don't think that's an issue. And I think that the licensed operators are going to follow every guideline to make sure that there isn't some unnecessary scandal around match fixing or cheating in any way. And so it it sounds a little, correct me if I'm wrong, it's as long as like with football, like with basketball, if you're sticking to major organizations or major tournaments, generally the integrity is going to be there. But just like in football, you 
you probably wouldn't be betting on high school football and expecting level of integrity if money was being thrown at it for players who don't have a big payout or aren't getting regular salaries. Absolutely. You're not going to bet on a pickup basketball game in someone's backyard, but we have full confidence that the NBA, they take integrity, I don't want to say more so than the gambling industry, but it's on par. So the gambling industry and the esports industry share the same understanding around integrity. It is just as important to the gaming industry as it is to us, which is why I think they complement each other. And there are a lot of things in place. So the physical events, it's pretty fascinating. A lot of, almost all of the major tournaments are offline, right? So 95% of the tournaments are online, but the real big ones that we all see these major prizes, they're offline. And many times they're in special arenas and studios where the two teams not only can't see each other, but in some cases, like at ESL Studios in Burbank, the teams can't hear or see the audience because the audience can actually see the perspective from both the players and they can inadvertently give hints and signals to the player. If you're playing Counter-Strike, for example, and guys around the corner and I can't see that person, but the audience accidentally says, look out around that corner, it gives an advantage to the player. And they've mitigated that by putting the teams behind uh, noise-proof glass where they can't see the audience, right? And they're going out of their way to make sure that not only is there not cheating, but there's no accidental hints given to one of the teams. Perfect. That makes sense. Yeah, I guess with any game, you could have that even with a League of Legends there's a stealth player from the other team, somebody could alert you to it, but everybody has to function almost in a little black box to make sure that's avoided. Online, there are things like DDoS attacks where the fans of one team actually try to compromise the internet connectivity of the opposing team. That stuff like has been known to happen. The major events are going to be on a closed circuit. They're not being played on the internet where, you know, those things can happen or not. So these are all things that the major tournament operators and game publishers are fully aware of. They're making sure these things don't happen, not because they're worried about gambling regulation, but they're worried about the integrity of their own games. They take these very seriously. I'm really glad you could illuminate that a little bit for those of our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with the esports and esports betting environment. That was a, I would say a synopsis, but just a full-blown explanation that was very comprehensive. Let's not forget that Let's look at Activision Blizzard that was bought by Microsoft. You think Microsoft wants a scandal? These are companies that are far larger than our gambling companies. Sure. These are some of the biggest companies in the world. Their reputations are more important than anything. Furthermore, the owners of many of the professional teams are either companies like Cox, right? Biggest One of the biggest media companies, Comcast, the two largest media companies in the country, or people like Robert Kraft that own major sports teams, Dan Gilbert. So the owners of the teams will not allow there to be a scandal. We are not talking about taking bets on like some Mickey Mouse league. This is very serious, on par with any professional stick and ball sports team or league. I think that's a perfect way to to wrap that topic up. Shannon, I think we went way down a rabbit hole there. I'll let you get us back on track. No, you're good. You're good. So one of the things that we talked earlier about, Sean had mentioned maybe some opportunities for some smaller operators in the esports segment, and you'd talked about how that shouldn't be like an exclusive focus. With your experience, do you have any other more general advice that you'd give for some smaller operators or startups that are in the industry? Uh, around esports or just gambling just, in general? Just in general, yeah. Go back to my prediction that the major sportsbook operators will be looking for ways of differentiating their products. There have already been a handful of very successful startups around micro betting and other things that'll just differentiate the end user experience. And I think that's, we're just in the beginning. And I think from my opinion and my experience, innovation comes from the small player. And I think that's with any industry. The gambling operators, the wins, Caesars, MGMs of the world, 
they're really good at operating very large organizations, very complicated buildings. They're not innovative technology companies, nor do they pretend to be. And I think that they have shown a willingness to merge with technology companies and acquire technology companies and invest in technology companies. And I think they will continue to do. I think we are already seeing that it's a very competitive landscape and some of the bigger operators are struggling. That's no secret. I certainly will not name any of them, but anyone familiar with the industry just knows that. And that's also not a surprise to me being an operator here in Las Vegas, where I have 12 competitors within walking distance. It's competitive. You have to come up with ways of differentiating your product. We do that in the land-based world. I don't think we've done that online. I think that the success of some of the online operators are because they're amazing at marketing. DraftKings is like the greatest marketing company of all time. They created an awesome brand and they're really good at acquiring customers. I don't know that their product is any different than Caesars app or MGMs or FanDuel. I'm sure someone there would argue with me, but I think any business, initially it's about acquisition. We've seen some companies willing to spend billions of dollars on TV and pay tens of millions of dollars to influencers. But the next phase has to be retention. And retention is, yes, it can partially be through promotions and bonusing, but it's also through experience. And I know I'm not being specific, but I guess I'm just would like to be encouraging to those entrepreneurs out there that believe they have something that can complement the mobile sports betting or mobile iGaming experience. And I think they they do. That doesn't mean that if someone's listening out there and they say, I'm going to start my own casino and I'm going to compete with DraftKings, I will save you a lot of time and energy and money. It's probably not a good idea. But if you can build a product that can be plugged into the different operators, that's, that is, I think, direction one should go. That makes sense. It's, I think everybody's seen at this point that you're just, you're not pulling away that market share at this point from those main operators, even with the differentiating product. So the ability to plug in could, could be huge for startups. I, I want to go back a little bit and kind of maybe a closing question what you've been really good at doing and what you've been pursuing in the past few years really seems to be not just product differentiation, but untapped markets. Obviously, the Latino market, not really catered to up to this point. Esports, esports betting, it's it's a market. It is a demographic with getting younger people more involved and in getting them into the gaming environment. And feel free to not say anything if this is your next big pursuit that hasn't been unsealed yet. But I guess, are there any other really untapped markets or demographics that you could see folks capitalizing on at this point? For, for me personally, we are all in on the Latino market, both here and abroad, and that will be our focus for many years to come. But you're right, I do these niche markets, esports. My, my partner and I also own and operate the country's second most popular tiki bar, and I've learned a lot about tiki culture, which is fascinating. I'm telling the truth because nobody claims to be the second best, right? Unless they, they really are. <laughs> no, but I love that even in downtown Las Vegas, here at the downtown Grand, we wanted to do something different, catering to the downtown audience. So I guess... What I can say without being too specific and identifying a specific demographic, I do think that there are opportunities to create brands specifically for different demographics. We, we, we've done it here in Las Vegas. A lot of people have done it for the Asian clientele, right? It's the most obvious. Chinese gambler is by far the biggest gambler in the world. It's just a fact. And they're, whether it's Wynn or MGM or even the Palms or Gold Coast, they've created experiences specifically for the Asian clientele. There's an online sports brand for Chinese, in Chinese, that's catering for the Chinese with Chinese influencers. That one seems pretty obvious. I think I I've, have seen a few concepts around a brand specifically for the female audience. That makes sense to me. So it's that segmentation and that differentiation that I think we'll see the next wave of operators just trying to establish a, a different brand for a more hyper-targeted segment. I think that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Seth. We've really appreciated the insight. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks again for joining us today on Connectify Conversations. You can support our show even more by leaving us a rating wherever you download your podcast and by sharing Connectify Conversations with gaming industry leaders like yourself. Visit connectify.com to learn more. That's K-I-N-E-C-T-I-F-Y dot com. Until our next conversation, always remember to minimize risk and maximize your efficiency.